Okay, well, good morning. Um, my name is Andrew Sharp. I'm an elder here. Um, occasionally, I get the privilege of, of delivering the sermon. Um, and today is one of those days. Um, we have been uh, in a series on 1 Corinthians 13, which is familiar to a lot of us. Um, we hear it, uh, or portions of it, um, weddings. Um, we see it sometimes in, in wall hangings. We actually have a wall hanging, the First Corinthians, where where we have our washer dryer. I don't know if that's as much an aesthetic decision as maybe a reminder that doing laundry is kindness. But, and I was actually thinking, you know, way too late that I should have just brought that, you know, took it off the wall and brought it in and read from, from that, which would have been weird. But, um, so let me read um, the first portion anyway of what's, what's in your bulletin. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, help us to, to use this time to reflect a bit on how we might better love others and also recognize how profoundly and deeply and completely you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the beginning of chapter 13 um, is a continuation of chapter 12, which is a discussion of spiritual gifts as distinct from each other, but nevertheless comprising the church, analogizing it uh, to the body of Christ. That's more in, in chapter 12. And in beginning chapter 13, Paul, rather bluntly, states that all the spiritual gifts in the world don't amount to much if they're not exercised with love. And then after that is the almost poetical explanation of what love is and what it isn't. And that is the portion that we hear typically at weddings and apparently on laundry room wall hangings. And when used in weddings, hopefully that it's being used on an occasion where there isn't a lot of 
pre-existing conflict or disharmony. And I'm, I'm not suggesting that that First uh, Corinthians 13 shouldn't be used at weddings. I, I think it's uh, actually a very, you know, it's good guidance to couples that are going to need to navigate disagreement, pride, selfishness as they grow together. But when Paul is talking about love, he's speaking to a church that is fraught with dysfunction and with disunity. And he's saying, you know, all, all the right theology, all the, all the great spiritual gifts or good deeds you might do, it's barren if, you're not, if it's not undergirded by love. And with the Corinthians, unity was a big problem. It was a small church, but even though it was small, it was very, very diverse. It had um, upper and lower classes. It had men and women, obviously, married people and unmarried people. It had slaves and free people. It had uh, converted Gentiles and prominent Jews. So e- even in this small congregation, it, it was very diverse. And they would disagree. And they would take sides against each other. And some would follow one teacher, and others would follow another teacher. And they would engage in some pretty uh, outrageous um, behaviors that, that Matt uh, spoke about uh, in previous weeks. To put it mildly, this church was a mess. And that was the situation into which Paul was speaking. When Matt asked me to preach this morning, he said, um, and this was sort of in advance of the series starting, he said, you know, we're doing 1 Corinthians 13, the love, love is and what isn't. And he wanted me to preach on love is kind and love is not arrogant. So those are the two that I'm going to be focusing on. And when I first thought about the sermon topic, I thought about it in terms of of weddings and that sort of thing. And I thought about, oh, well, I can talk about um, marriage relationships. And I can talk about how I I think ideally, hopefully, you know, marriage is is a gentle, ongoing, continuous exchange of kindnesses between one person and another. Almost a pitch and catch of love between two people. And I I thought maybe I'll talk about how marriage is hopefully not a 50-50 proposition, but a 100-100 proposition with both people striving imperfectly to bring 100% to the relationship without an expectation of balance. And just as people who give their lives up to Christ... They, they give something up, but they gain much more in the end. They, they become more fully themselves. I, I think that happens in, in happy marriages, that there, there is something we give up when we give to ourselves to another person, and yet in the end, hopefully, we become more fully ourselves in the process. 
with Jesus, love isn't a 50-50 proposition. Jesus brings 100% and we bring whatever it is we bring to it. And his love for us is not conditioned on how much we love him, thank goodness. Because if it was a condition, he wouldn't have gone to the cross for us. And as for love not being arrogant, I would hopefully not have difficulty convincing you all that an attitude of it's all about me would be toxic and destructive to a relationship. But love is both people having the mindset that it's all about the happiness and well-being of the other person. If the other person doesn't feel loved or desired or valued or cared for, then we're probably doing it wrong. And maybe that's an ideal. Maybe we're never good enough to be like that except for brief periods of time. But that should be what we try for. And I think a reasonable reaction to that kind of preaching, were I to preach it, would be, well, what if the other person doesn't hold up their end of the bargain? I, I'm all for them, but they're not all for me, or not enough for me. And it's natural to resent that kind of imbalance. And there is no easy solution to our personal brokenness and sinfulness in relationships. Tim Keller um, would give this advice to young couples who were, he was counseling in advance of marriage. Um, he told them that if they were to consider what is the problem in my marriage, the answer should always be I am. And if two people pr approach their relationship that way, it's probably a good sign for the relationship. And if you can approach it that way, it frees, you know, it frees you from viewing relationship as a ledger that we scrutinize to determine, determine if we're getting our fair share. I think I could have done a pretty decent sermon focusing on that, focusing on kindness and interpersonal relationships, especially romantic relationships. And maybe you would have been fully convinced. In fact, I think you probably would have been fully convinced that kindness, good. Kindness is good. Arrogance, bad. You're probably thinking, Andrew, that would have been an epic sermon. But what are you going to preach on? Well, Paul is talking to a broader audience. He's talking to a messed up church, a diverse church, and using love as a point of departure. So I want to talk about it in the same way. I want to first sort of apply that to our church, and then with respect to the, the community beyond our church. And I think our first instinct when we're thinking about kindness and arrogance in a church setting is that it might be easier to navigate than those things in the context of a marriage relationship or a household relationship. Because we seem to have more control 
over our interactions than we might if we're living in a household with, with someone who we're going to see every day. Maybe we're not apt or as apt to be as blunt or critical with people we don't know well. And in a group setting, it's, it's easier to be disengaged, if you want. You know, there's less of a feeling of personal responsibility sometimes. If I don't contribute in some way to something that's going on in the church, it's probably okay. Someone else will do it. You know, and, and a, lot of, a lot of folks are hesitant to, to really plunge into community in a church or serve within a church. Because we think that doing that is going to consume us. That too much will be asked of us. And some people have trouble saying no. So we keep a distance. And in so doing, um, we minimize the potential that we might be hurt by someone else. Or minimize the potential that we might hurt somebody else. Because when, when you're in community with imperfect people, that happens. But hanging back in the periphery of things also tends to limit the kindnesses that we can extend to others and the kindnesses that we can receive from others. And it's, and it's tricky because there are a lot of people who have been hurt by others in a church setting. You know, maybe it was a, a condemning remark from someone who was in authority or or a helpful criticism by someone in the mainstream of the church. Maybe a longtime member criticized or corrected someone's understanding of Scripture in a way that made them feel less smart or less biblically literate. Maybe someone expressed a political view with the sort of tacit assumption that the whole church held that same view and if the person if the individual doesn't hold that that political view they may feel like they're outsiders or maybe it's a situation where someone expected a kindness or sympathy that wasn't extended do people have a tendency to to serve other people that they know and like I mean, does that happen more easily to us? I, I, I think it kind of does. Are folks more guarded about extending kindness to a person or family that they don't know as well? Or are we hesitant to wade into a situation that maybe we don't know that much about? The hurt people experience in a church setting can echo for years. You know, it's remembered. And, and folks will see the injury or insult as not necessarily from a particular person who said something carelessly, but they'll see it as coming from a representative of that church or that denomination or maybe even Christianity as a whole. Opening up to others in a church setting requires us to be vulnerable. And, you know, once burned, folks will not quickly let themselves be vulnerable again. So in our interactions with each other, the stakes are high. 
We all have moments when we say things without the kindness we intend. We'll say something with a tone. I say things with a tone. My family points that out on a fairly regular basis. I don't want to. I usually don't mean it in a bad way, whatever it is I've said with the tone. I probably am trying to be funny. Most often that's the case. Or not. Or not. The sad truth is with me, especially as I've gotten older, there isn't a huge amount of filtering you know, that happens between when something crosses my mind and when I verbalize it. I, I need to be able to apologize more. Being able to say I'm sorry, that's kindness. And I especially have trouble apologizing when I can be satisfied in my own mind that whatever it is that I've said, I meant it well. And if I think I've meant it well, then if it's taken some other way, that's the other person's problem. So why should I apologize for that? And that kind of thinking leads to the classic, you know, non-apology apologies that we, we hear uh, public figures say with some regularity. I'm sorry if you took it that way. I'm sorry to all the people I offended. I kind of think that when there's anything that follows the word apology, or that follows the word sorry in an apology, it's probably not a true apology. And it is hard to say, I'm sorry, period. When Mary and I were dating, we had a disagreement about something. I, it was one of the last disagreements we ever had. Um, <laughs> You know, and I, I really, I was thinking about this, I was trying to remember like specific things that we had disagreed about over the years, and I think I could remember two actual things um, of any, you know, that got us angry um, in, in 26 years. And so, I, I don't know what this was about. I, I truly don't. Um, and... My experience in our marriage has taught me that whatever it was, I was almost certainly wrong. Almost certainly wrong. What I remember is, and I, Mary was living in Simsbury and I was living in Cromwell, um, that I, I drove home to Cromwell and Mary called me to express concern that something, that she had said something that had caused harm to the, the relationship. And she hadn't. She hadn't harmed the relationship, but I was always struck by the fact that she called to, to be concerned about that and, and just to apologize without any sort of reference to the merits of what we were each arguing about. And I always felt really, really blessed to be with someone who, who had the emotional intelligence to just put aside the subject matter and just express that concern again because she was almost certainly right when we when we disagree with someone in the context of our church 
we need to recognize it. We need to, to own it and apologize and seek forgiveness. And with God's grace, it'll be the apology rather than the offense that the person remembers. And if you're the person who's been wronged by someone else, be generous with your forgiveness. Whether there's an apology or not, be generous. Kindness lies in not holding that grudge, even if you feel really entitled to it. Chances are the other person is totally oblivious to the fact that you were offended. Love is kind. It apologizes. It forgives. Love is a gentle steward of someone else's vulnerability. Love knows when to say nothing. Love is slow to criticize or correct someone's understanding of Scripture or life choices that they've made. And love is very careful and very thoughtful when a difficult truth needs to be expressed. Now, as I said earlier, Paul was writing uh, his letter to a particular church. And he did not necessarily intend it to apply to the world at large. But I, I do want to discuss that a little bit. And I want to talk about arrogance. The dictionary definitions of arrogance include conceit, pride, self-importance, and entitlement. And if I could combine the, if the opposite of that in one word, I'd probably pick humility. As a church, are we prideful or humble? I mean, this particular church. I, I would hope we would tend to humility. I, I don't personally, you know, detect an undercurrent of arrogance or self-importance on our part. But I, I'm involved, you know, in the church, and I've been coming here for a while, so I'm not necessarily the best person to judge that kind of thing. As a church, are we known for our humility in the community? Are Christians generally regarded as humble people? Or are we viewed as a little bit prideful, a little bit having the sense of our own superiority? There are people who believe and may be very justified in their belief that Christians can be patronizing and arrogant when informing non-Christians that even though they may not realize it, they have a need for a savior. And it seems a bit arrogant for me to suggest to another that I know what's best for them even if they don't, especially if my advice is unsolicited. I can see how someone would regard that as arrogant. An expression of truth can still be arrogant. 
Have you ever been playing a sport with someone who was at your skill level or maybe below your skill level, but nevertheless they wanted to give you pointers on how you could be better? I've had that happen. It's annoying. It's arrogant. It's presumptuous, right? You know, maybe they should worry about their own deficiencies before they make themselves my coach. But do Christians tend to do that when it comes to other groups or individuals that we think are maybe especially needing our enlightenment? You know, as, as followers of Christ, hopefully, as, as we deepen in our, in our faith and understanding, we recognize that our need for a Savior is born from our inherent sinfulness. And that's a condition that's not within our power to correct, regardless of all the good things we might do. We recognize that we're sinful people in a messed up world. And a lot of people may very readily agree that, yeah, the world's messed up. But people tend to see themselves as good people in that messed up world. And I think it takes people a long time to reach a, a real true understanding that their nature, and indeed everyone's nature, disqualifies us from a relationship with a purely holy God absent Christ's work on the cross. That, that is a, that's a tough theological con, you know, concept to fully grasp. And I, I would have to say that I was many years a Christian before I think I had a real deep understanding and appreciation of that. So I think we need to come at that from a position of humility. A newspaper asked um, G.K. Chesterton, uh, who was a, a Catholic thinker and a Christian writer uh, many years ago, to write an article on what he thought was wrong with the world. And this is what he wrote. Dear sirs, I, somehow I think it, he's, he probably sounded like that with the name G.K. Chesterton. Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. I am. That's awesome. You know, I mean, it's like, just like approaching a marriage with the mindset that, you know, I'm the problem in the marriage. You know, maybe we need to see the world that way. And I think maybe it's easier to grasp it conceptually in the context of a marriage than, than thinking about it in terms of, our role in the larger world. I mean, that can seem kind of challenging and intimidating. But you know, in considering how how we might do that, let's turn back to Paul's teaching that love is kind. And I'm talking about when we we're acting kindly to others. Um, I'm not talking necessarily about um, how to convey the gospel exactly, but just if we're being kind. How often when we're being kind do we expect something in return? 
some kind of acknowledgement from the other person. We want them to know that we've done something for them. And then in some way, we can feel better about ourselves. If I'm in traffic and I wait for another motorist to enter my lane of travel, I want a wave. I want that wave of acknowledgement, which most people will do. But every once in a while, someone doesn't wave. And my reaction, I think, probably should be, huh. But re instead, my reaction is, what? I want my wave. And if I don't get it, I am perturbed. I am annoyed. And if that's my thinking, then my supposed kindness was really just nothing more than a transaction through which I wanted something in return. I wanted the wave because then I'd know they appreciated what I did and I'd feel good for a moment in some small kind of weird petty way in my mind I would feel good. And I think the kind of kindness that Paul is talking about, that kind of love kindness, is that which has no strings attached to it. You know, if my kindnesses to the world are conditioned on anything coming back to me, that's not kindness, but it's self-centeredness. And that's pretty close to arrogance. And I, it's an easy trap to fall into. I mean, the, you know, waving the driver in, that's a, sort of an absurd example. But we, in, in a lot of ways, in, in a church setting, we want to judge ourselves by our effectiveness. Because um, we're kind of taught to do that. Um, you know, if we have an event, we'll think, well, how many people started attending the church because of that event? Or if we're a church that hands out brochures, which we don't really do. But if we were, maybe we're asking, well, how many brochures did you hand out? How many meals did you serve? How many people came to Christ because of whatever? You know, in the business world, we have... We have goals and objectives and metrics and key performance indicators. And, you know, I, I worry that with churches that can inform how we do church. I know it's not, not us, of course, but we're, we're, we're not like that, right? I don't think so. But it makes it seem... Like if we're judging our kindnesses based on some result, it becomes transactional. And I wonder if the purest 
kindness we can, as Christians, offer the community is simply to help without an expectation of anything. Maybe, you know, secondarily, we might have the hope that we would reveal ourselves to our community in the process. But you can't measure that, really. Um, It's hard to just help, period. It is. It is. It's hard for me. Last week, Jeff Moger talked about the relationship between our church and Hartford City Mission. It's one of several outreaches from our church into the community. Day camp is another. Um, Supporting the local food pantry is another that's just getting off the ground. Prison ministry, homeless ministry, same thing. There are ways to serve. Maybe some of you are quietly serving others in your community. We need to serve. A church that doesn't serve doesn't love. It's like a big social group rather than a church with a living faith. And when you serve, you'll probably be serving people who don't profess faith in Jesus. And through your interactions, you may well have occasions to talk about Jesus and God. They may just come up. And when those occasions arise, I I would pray that you and me and all of us, you know, would be given the right words to say to convey the love of Jesus in those moments. But I would say never let that be a condition of, of your service. There should be no, I did this for you, so hear me out about this Jesus thing. Because that makes it a transaction. When, when Jesus healed, he did not require a profession of faith. Sometimes he, someone expressed that. Most often he just asked, what do you want me to do for you? That would be a great mindset to have as a church. So how about this for an application? This is more like homework. I know, you're like, oh my gosh, he fills in and giving us homework. Well, it's up to you to to what you want to do with it. Um, Simply this, go do a kindness for someone you don't know. Some kind of kindness doesn't have to be anything big or dramatic. Maybe it's a kind word. Maybe you can quietly pay for someone's coffee. Don't wait around, wait around to be thanked. Try not to, to be there to be thanked. And don't watch to see what the reaction is. We have, um, I don't know, between the two services, maybe... 200 people that, you know, attend here this week. Imagine if the majority of us did that. Just all those kindnesses being done. No strings attached. And us not knowing what happened with any of it. 
That, that would be glorious. That'd be amazing. And there'd be no assessment of how effective we were. Something to think about. Would you pray with me? Father God, sometimes it is just disappointing how clumsily we love others, people who are close to us, people who are not close to us. And we can love with an agenda, even if it's not something that we're really aware of. Help us to to crawl beyond that mindset. Help us to love a little bit more like how you love. In Jesus' name, amen.